I've done many weddings in my ministry, and uh, one of my greatest fears is forgetting the names of those that I am marrying. Uh, if you've, I know, Pastor Tom, you've done weddings too, and and uh, if if you've, if you are the person that is responsible for the marriage, uh, you 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 only do that once. You screw up once. I've now screwed up twice. Uh, well, I guess in 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 thirty years of ministry, that's not a bad record, but uh, this uh, a. a my first wedding, 30, 35 years ago, I accidentally used uh, a guy's middle name instead of his, his first name. And after that, I thought, I will never do that again. So I don't care how close I am to the bride and groom. I may absolutely know them for all of their life. I always write in capital letters in my notes their names, first and last. Last month, I was marrying my niece and her boyfriend. And uh, I wrote down their names like a good pastor would, even my niece's name, and I know her quite well. Uh, because you never know what happens in the, in the moment and the lights and thousands of eyes on you. Not really, but it feels like it sometimes. And... Uh, I didn't know him as well as I knew her, obviously, and I had written down his name. There's one portion of the wedding ceremony where I don't use just first and last. I use first, middle, and last because it's a serious moment. You got to use, you know, you got to use the middle name when it's serious, right? And so I had written down the wrong order of middle and first name somehow. And so I, I used it wrong, and she goes, mm-mm. I was like, what do you mean, mm-mm? And she told me what the first and middle name was. And in the middle of the, in the heat of the moment, I've, I didn't quite memorize exactly what she said. And the next paragraph, I had to say it again. And I said it wrong a second time. She goes, mm-mm. I was like, oh my goodness. So I just decided, don't use the middle name. Let's just get this thing married. No, get this couple married. I always tell my couples that I, that I do marriage counseling that we're not focused on a wedding. We're focused on a marriage. Too often, uh, brides and grooms, they're so concerned about that one event that's going to be at 3 o'clock on that one Saturday that they forget that, that the next day they're going to be married to a person and in another year they're going to still be married and in 20 years. So how do we handle this marriage, not, just not a wedding? Have you noticed that some people are so focused on an event that they also forget about all of the preparation that goes into getting to the event and what comes afterwards. If you've ever been a farmer or been around farmers, you know that, that there's not just a harvest that you're focused on. You've got to start months and sometimes years ahead for that one harvest, right? 
hundreds of hours. When we pastored in Washington, we had vineyard owners and apple orchard owners as a huge portion of the church. And I was just amazed at the hundreds and hundreds of hours that they put in and within one day it was harvested. Maybe there are, there, there are careers that require uh, many hours and years of education and training. I calculated that I spent 26 years in school. It took me 13 years to get through high school and then another 13 years to get through all of the other education. Athletes, especially Olympians, they will prepare for hundreds of hours, multiple years. Sometimes they can't even work a job because they're spending 12 and 14 hours a day in the gym preparing for that one event. I'd like to focus our attention this morning on a character in the Bible who recognizes the importance of preparation. His name was John the Baptist. He was a, he was a, a, a preacher that said some pretty harsh truths. They were true, nonetheless. He was often found in the desert <clears throat> because he really wasn't welcome in the towns. Uh, he had a habit, habit of, well, telling the truth. And some people didn't like that very well. He also happened to be the cousin of Jesus. He had one responsibility in his entire life, his entire ministry, and it was this, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Would you please stand? And in honor of re uh, reading God's word, uh, we're going to stand and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 12. My friends, what I'm about to read to you is God's inspired, true words. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out. To him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptized, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in, coming, in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable 
fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Back in the year 2000, I, I was teaching a class in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and the, the, the missionary who happened to be Cambodian himself came up to me and he said uh, that he had just been invited to a royal celebration that, we, that he was going to be uh, celebrating with the king of Cambodia and he wondered if I would like to go with him. And I was like, well, I was going to clean my fingernails tonight, so I don't think I'll... Well, yes, I would love to go celebrate the, the Festival of the Boats, which is a huge celebration in Cambodia, with the king. And come to find out there would be around 30 ambassadors from all over the world. There would be Cambodian government officials, secretaries of this and that, and... His son, the prince, would be there. The king would obviously be, be there. It was just an amazing national holiday. And what an honor for this hillbilly from Missouri to be able to go and celebrate with the king and his son. The country, as, as you know, Cambodia, especially decades ago when I was there, uh, is a very broken country. It's not just a third world country, but when I was there at least, the transportation system was totally uh, broken. The electrical system, uh, I needed to make a phone call on a Sunday. The one international operator they had was on vacation that day. So no international calls could go out from Cambodia on Sunday. That's how broken it was. But on this day, there was to be a grand celebration with the king and his son and so they built a brand new road that would go from the palace all the way to the river. It was the most beautiful asphalt you've ever seen in your entire life. It would have been beautiful in the States, but when you're in Phnom Penh and every road had potholes or dead animals on it or, or grass growing through it, this was just a beautiful road that took you right down to the river where they had built a brand new pavilion that had beautiful brand new carpets, colorful carpets all over the place because the king was coming to that event. In the time of Christ, if there was, a, if there was royalty coming into town, he would be preceded by a crew of soldiers, trumpeters, and what we might call hype creators, or there's a new term in today's social media, influencers. Have you heard that term, influencers? An influencer in social media is someone who is paid to talk about a certain perfume or a certain whatever it is car and they would talk on social media and create hype and get everybody to buy that one thing. During Christ's day, there was the same thing. They would come in a day or two, maybe even months ahead of time, and they would announce with great fanfare that someone 
was about to come or a certain thing was to be done in their time in, in in a certain time they would make sure that the people in the village knew the roads had to be beautiful the sewer the sewer ditches had to be cleaned out the dead animals on the road had to be removed flowers had to be planted you need to paint your village it needs to be beautiful because king so and so is coming they had to clean the streets the people were to wear their best clothing they had to be waiting at the road whenever the king were to come John was a bit like the crew who announced that royalty was coming. He prepared people for the coming of the king of kings. John had this sense of urgency for the people to get prepared because someone very important was coming. Last week I talked about a word that we don't use very often, but we only use it during Christmas, it's this word Advent. We talk about the Advent season. We talk about the Advent candles. We talk about the Advent of Christ. Advent means coming. It means coming. It, it, it talks about the coming of Christ, the Advent of Christ in the past, but it also talks about the coming of Christ in the future. The first advent is in the past. The second advent of Christ is coming in the future. We don't talk very often about the second coming of Christ, unfortunately. We should talk about it more. In fact, the scripture uh, is full of passages that talk about the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of Christ to gather his own. In fact, one uh, New, Te New Testament scholar believe that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament alluded to the doctrine of the second advent of Christ. He will come back to earth in the future to establish his kingdom and establish his reign here on earth. John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, the second advent, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Al Alistair Bag Begg is a pastor and writer and he does such a great job in this one paragraph. I wanted to make sure it was on the board so you could read it uh, uh, with me. The king is coming, he said, and the full disclosure of his reign, the ultimate establishment of his of his. Uh, kingdom awaits his coming. And when he comes, the visible establishment of God's reign over all of the hosts and powers of evil will be seen. And for all the things that I don't know, and all of the things that I don't understand about the coming of the king, I do know and understand this, that the return of Jesus will be personal, it will be physical, it will be visible and sudden and glorious and will usher his people into his everlasting kingdom. That's really good news because I promise you I don't know a lot of the second coming of Christ. I don't know when. I, I, I know some things, only what the scripture is very clear and a lot of the second coming of Christ is purposely fuzzy in the scripture. But 
I agree with Pastor Beg that it will be personal, it will be physical, it will be visible, and it will be sudden and glorious. This morning, I believe we need to see that the way John the Baptist prepared for Christ's first coming has lessons as to how we should prepare for Christ's second coming. You see, as we prepare for Christ's second coming, we must be we must prepare to be out of place in society. You see, John the Baptist seems to be a character in the wrong play. He was out of place always. In a very real sense, the Israel that John the Baptist found was just as secular and just as sinful as we find ourselves in today. For a society that sings, "'Tis the season to be jolly," Who wants some wilderness desert preacher dressed in camel hair and eating locust beans to come along and tell them to change their day? When our society sings, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, who wants a social outcast telling the religious elite that they are just broods of vipers? When our society wants to sing, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Who wants this religious outcast loudly telling government leaders that they're living in adultery? And who wants some desert dweller with honey dripping off of his unkept beard to sing to them joy to the world, the Lord has come. This country boy certainly didn't look like he was theologically astute. John was different than the world that he lived in. John the Baptist's message was not very popular to most people that day. And in a very real sense, we as Christians await the second coming of Christ, are are called to be outcasts. We We are called to say some truthful things in a very harsh world. And just as John stood firm in the midst of persecution for standing for righteousness, we are called to be willing to pronounce Christ's light in a very dark world. Have you noticed that Christians who stand for righteousness are often seen as buffoons, ignorant, unenlightened, We've heard a word that has become quite popular in the last five years, especially. It's this word, woke. Anybody heard that word in social media and, and uh, news? What's the opposite of woke? Asleep, ignorant, blind. That's how the world sees us today. It sees us as ignorant buffoons who don't think in a higher level as those who are now woke. I'm glad that I'm not woke, if that's what it means to live a righteous life. As we prepare for Christ's second coming, we must prepare with a a changed heart. 
When John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, he used a very specific word. It's, this word repent is crammed with theological meaning. Repent has three different uh, uh, definitions or meanings. The first is it's the recognition of wrong. Repent means that there is a recognition of wrong. We have felt this gnawing guilt in our conscience. Conscious. We have come to understanding that our act was sin. There are questions that need to be answered. We are wrong. So there is a recognition that we have done wrong. It, there's also this sense of regret, this sense of of remorse for this act of sin. And the last is this firm commitment to go totally different and change our direction. We do a U-turn spiritually. John the Baptist was telling the people of the day that to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, they needed to repent of their sin. They, they needed to do a U-turn of their sins and go the totally opposite way. In the very act of sending his son, God spoke of the freedom men could have from the strangle of sin. Uh, anybody heard of a cartoon by the name of Charlie Brown? His uh, neighbor, kind of friend, Lucy, you ever remember Lucy? Several years ago, uh, the Peanuts uh, comic strip had Lucy and Charlie practicing football. We often saw this, this scene around the football Thanksgiving season. Uh, Lucy is holding the ball for Charlie. Uh, she's uh, holding the ball and, and Charlie would run with all of his might towards the ball and try to kick it. But every time, what did Lucy do? Lucy had this evil streak in her. And every time Charlie would run with all of his might, he would, he would run and try to kick the ball. And at the very last minute, he would he would, she would take the ball away and he would kick with all of his might as if there's no return and he would just go flying because of the momentum on the ground and just poof, lose all of his breath. And I'm sure she just laughed under her breath. The strip that I'm talking about um, is, it, it, it opens with Lucy holding the ball, but Charlie is not willing to do that scene one more time. He had learned his lesson. Lucy begged him to run and kick the ball, but Charlie Brown said, Lucy, every time I try to kick the ball, you remove it, and I fall on my back, and it hurts. They went back and forth for the longest time, and finally Lucy broke down in tears. And admitted, Charlie Brown, I have been so terrible to you over the years. Picked up the football, and you've hurt yourself. I've played so many cruel tricks on you, but I've seen the errors of my way, Charlie Brown. I've 
seen the hurt look in your eyes when I've deceived you. I've been wrong, so wrong. Won't you give a poor penitent girl another chance? Charlie Brown was trusting. Charlie was moved by her display of grief and responded to her, of course, Lucy, I'll give you another chance. And he steps back several paces as she holds the ball. And he runs with top speed. Do you know what's coming? And at the last moment, Lucy picks up the ball and Charlie Brown falls flat on his back again. Lucy's last words in the comic strip were, recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things, Charlie Brown. There's a sermon illustration there somewhere. Had Lucy truly repented? She had recognized that she was wrong. She had a sense of regret. But her direction had not changed. She did it over again. Preparing for the second coming of Christ will require truly a repentant heart, a heart that has, has recognized the error of its ways, been forgiven and now completely changed in direction and done a U-turn spiritually. And as we prepare for Christ's second coming, we must prepare for a new kingdom. Scripture says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let me just remind you that John the Baptist was used to help break a 400-year period of silence. Put it in context, remember? In between the Old Testament and New Testament, there was this 400-year time period that nothing happened, at least that the people could see. No angels, no prophets, no great spiritual miracles. It was silent until an angel spoke to Mary and an angel spoke to Joseph, but then hardly anything happened until now John the Baptist. The people were hungry for this new outpouring of the rule of God. The people were desperate to find freedom from the, the Roman guards and officials. The people were looking for the Messiah the Old Testament had prophesied about over 300 times. <clears throat> but remember, the Jews were looking for a glorious king they were looking for a victorious army of God to bring about Israelite freedom and rule once again. But when Christ came, his message was, his message of what the new kingdom looked like was totally different than what they thought. Jesus emphasized that true believers, citizens of the new kingdom, were to be different from all of the others. 
They were not to take their cue from others around them, but they were to look solely on their king. One of the first things that Jesus said, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And in that sermon or sermons, he begins to talk to them about what the new kingdom and the new citizens were to look like and believe. The Beatitudes speak of how our character is to be completely distinct from that admired by the world. Christ preached that we were to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness, that our righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that our love was to be greater and our ambition nobler than those of our kingdom who do not believe in Christ. We were to turn our cheek when we were sinned against, that our commitments were to be kept, that our relationships were to be pure, totally opposite of what the world was preaching in that day. As we prepare for the second coming of Christ, these kingdom principles must be our goal. We are called out people. Live like it. We are forgiven children of God. Act like that. We have been promised eternal life. Plan like that. We have been invited to be God's hands here on earth. Love people like that. We have been asked to mirror the holiness of God. Reflect like that. Kingdom people. That's who God has invited us to be in this world today as we prepare. And last, as we prepare for for Christ's second coming, we must prepare for a new controller. Verse 11 says, I baptize you with water for, for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I enjoy flying. I, I'm, I'm, it's losing more and more of its luster, I'll be honest. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't sleep and rest well when I'm traveling at all. The only time I sleep well when I'm traveling is when I'm driving, and that's not a great thing. Uh, uh, so on a plane, it's difficult for a large, tall body like mine. But anyway, I've been on many uh, long international trips, and, and uh, I've often thought what would happen if the pilot and the co-pilot become deathly ill or something happens, they jump out with parachutes and all of a sudden there are 400 people on this plane and they look to me and they say, Brent, 
you must get in the pilot's seat. I, I know, you all think of the same thing, I know. And so I've often wondered, would I have what it takes to do it? I mean, I, I, could, I would do whatever I had to do to get everybody down safe. I have no idea how to fly a plane, but somewhere in the world, there's some guy with a, with a microphone who would tell me, push that button, and I would do it, right? So I would get in the seat, I know, in my mind. I've got, way, I've got a lot of time on a plane, right? 14-hour flights, I, I think of strange things. So I would sit in the, in the pilot's seat, and I would be nervous, and I know I'd be sweating, and, and I, would, I would be jittery, and I, everybody's life depended on me. And with white knuckles, I would grab a hold of the thingy, whatever you, can you tell I'm not a pilot? And I would just start pushing buttons, and I would try to get all the alarms to stop. And I would try my best in my ignorance, but what if? What if? There was a tap on my shoulder, and a man said with a very calm voice, I am a master teacher of all the pilots for this company. Would you like for me to take control of this plane? And if I said, nah, I think I'll do it, how smart do you think I would be? When we have given over our lives to God and prepare for his second return, the last thing we want to do is hold on to the reins of control. What did John the Baptist say? He spoke of how the Holy Spirit would come with power and authority and wisdom, and that was God's gift to us. During my prayer time, I always talk about after Christ's death and resurrection, Christ goes to heaven to prepare a place for us, yet he sends his Holy Spirit down to us to do what? To give us power and wisdom and authority and direction and convict us and give us everything that we need to be Christ-like and mirror his holiness. The Holy Spirit wants to do several things in our lives. He wants to take total control of our lives. The Holy Spirit wants to give us victory over sin. He wants to empower us for service. He wants to ensure, he wants to ensure our an eternal life with Christ. But he waits for that invitation. Listen to me. He waits for us to invite him into our lives. Too often we we say we want him to, but we keep the doors locked. Or maybe we say you can come in this part of our life or our house, but this part, not so much. And until then, he's only a guest. He's waiting for us to invite him in and take complete control of our lives. And I saved the best for last. I said there was one more thing I 
I don't want to say I lied, but there is one more thing. As we prepare for Christ's second coming, we must prepare to be used of God. Remember that John the Baptist was a social joke. He was a religious outcast. He spoke hard truths. He spoke with new meaning about new traditions and about a new Messiah, totally different Messiah than they expected. And even then, the scripture says in verses 5 through 6, people went out to him from Jerusalem and in all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John the Baptist didn't fit in the common mold, but he was available. He spoke the truth. He pointed people to Christ. He gave them hope for their future. He asked them to take a step to be baptized and thereby publicly confess their trust in God himself. Do you know what happened? Others began to preach the same message and the truth was then spread. In Acts, Peter basically preached the same thing John the Baptist did when he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it ends this way. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Listen. People are desperate today for some ray of hope in their lives. People are desperate to find forgiveness. They may not know even what forgiveness means, but they're desperate for hope. People are desperate to find answers to tough questions. Be ready to be that John the Baptist who is willing to speak harsh truth in love. People are desperate for a message that will not change. Be willing to proclaim truth. If you make yourselves available, I can promise you that God will use you as a tool of his grace. I wonder what would happen if each one of us prayed for just one opportunity to tell the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody this week. What would happen if after praying, we'd literally expected it? In every conversation, wondering, is this the conversation? With every time at a store, every time going to the coffee shop, might today be the day that God answers my prayer? I wonder what would happen if you begin praying for only one unsaved people today. I wonder what would happen in our community if we began to be John the Baptists and proclaim the truth. I know. God would begin using you in ways 
that you never dreamed. Would you please stand? There's an old story of a king of bygone days and his jester who would sometimes say some very foolish things just to get a laugh. One day the jester had said something so foolish that the king handed him a staff, a cane, and said to him, take this and keep it until you find a bigger fool than yourself. Some years later, the king was very ill and was now laying on his own deathbed. His family and his servants stood around his bedside and the king addressed them all and said, I am about to leave you. I'm going on a very long journey and I shall not return again to this place. So I have called you all to say goodbye. Then his jester stepped towards him, addressing the king. He said, your majesty, may I ask you a question? When you have journeyed abroad, visiting your people, staying with your nobles, or paying diplomatic visits to other courts, your heralds, your servants have always gone before you, making preparation for you. May I ask what preparations your majesty has made for this long journey you are about to take? Alas, the king replied, I have no, made no preparations. Then the jester said, take this staff with you, for now I have found a bigger fool than myself. I can't imagine a better gift to possess than the gift of forgiveness. Can I ask you, have you received the free gift of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins? And can I say, if you have not yet accepted Christ, what a what a better, there's no other season better than this to celebrate the coming of Christ himself to say, Father, I, I've lived a broken life. I'm desperate for hope. I need you to forgive me. I now recognize that I'm broken and I've sinned and I've sinned against you. But I ask you to forgive me. I invite you to be my Messiah and change me from what I was to what I know you want me to become. And then my U-turn is one that is spiritual. I was going one direction and I now commit to going the opposite. As we sing this song, could I just ask every one of us, even though you might have accepted Christ years ago, this is a wonderful time for us to go back to that decision we made. 
Have you truly not just recognized your sin, but have you made the U-turn and totally repented of your sin? As we sing, I'd invite you to come to the altars. I'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to be seated and prayed there, we would love to pray with you. Let's sing. you receive this benediction. I wish for you this Christmas that a divine sense of urgency will prevail over your preparation for his coming. May you experience the newness of life that comes through repentance. May you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit calling you to a deeper commitment that only comes through losing control. May you experience the spiritual fruit that only comes through daily willingness to be used and empowered by God who has come and who will be coming again. So now, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, for he's already, for he's already gone before you. Amen. You're dismissed.